This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays. On this edition of America Changed Forever, California's recall election. We need volunteers because they all know that this is a governor who's not up to the task. We need a fresh start. The state's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, keeps his job after a challenge from Republican candidate Larry Elder. What does Newsom's victory mean for the GOP and other states across the country ahead of the 2022 midterm elections? We need to stiffen our spines and lean in to keeping people safe and healthy. It's the right thing to do, but it's also a motivating factor. In this election, we're going to talk to a Republican and a Democratic strategist. Also, a rally in D.C. in support of the people arrested in connection with the January 6th insurrection. Is this the GOP's pitch to voters? We support the people who stormed the Capitol, causing millions in damage and injuring police officers. Is that a winning pitch? Let's begin with my conversation with Matt Brainerd, who is one of the organizers of the Justice for J6 rally. All right, Matt, tell me about your organization. Look Ahead America is America First Community Organizing. We have a national staff. We have state leadership in 40 states. and We have between 2,500 and 3,000 volunteers all across the country. Our primary objective is voter registration, targeting patriotic Americans, getting them registered, getting them educated, and turning them out to vote. We also engage in direct actions educating state legislators and federal legislators, and occasionally when it's necessitated, protest. All right. So as we speak, there are a lot of preparations underway for the rally on Saturday, September 18th. This program, Matt, just for your knowledge, it'll air Friday and throughout the weekend. What is the message you want to send coming out of this rally? A police department shot an unarmed woman and then clear themselves without any third-party oversight or outside investigation. If you believe that's wrong, you are on our side. And increasingly, more and more Americans are on our side. We've had a recent poll from Rasmussen that shows 49% of Americans believe that these are political prisoners. Only 43% disagree. So this is an important issue. This is a deep stain on our nation's soul, the abuse of these individuals who've been targeted, the lack of accountability in Astrid Babbitt shooting, unanswered questions, the government's refusal to turn over 14,000 hours of video coverage of what happened that day. There was no instruction to begin with. And these people are political prisoners and we're going to stand up for them. I appreciate you coming on the show. I want to hear your viewpoint, which you've outlined, what you are concerned about, what you are rallying about. But you said something there that is hard for me to believe as someone who was there on January 6th. You said that the the people there were peaceful. Do you know how many police officers were injured in that insurrection? You didn't mention that. 
we have developed the most complete database of all the people that have been charged, all the people that have been arrested. We know who their attorneys are. We know what their current status is. And the vast majority of them are not charged with anything violent or charged with destruction of property. Now, if you've done your homework, you know that we sent a letter to the Department of Justice and the FBI in January, and I made a video addressing that, where I specifically said that anybody that has been accused of violence should get a speedy trial and be locked up. That's not really the focus of our rally, though. The focus of the rally are the hundreds of people who have not been charged with violence, not been charged with destruction, but charged with petty crimes like trespassing or parading. And historically, these individuals have faced nothing more than a $35 or $50 fine, if that, and released same day. They were not turned into domestic terrorists. So when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez led a sit-in of the Speaker's office interfering with government business, they were let go that day. I don't even know if they were fined. When protesters interrupted the Kavanaugh hearings over and over again, interfering with government business and trespassing in Senate office buildings, they were let go same day and bailed out. Many times on the same day going back to do the same act again. This disparate treatment between these two groups has nothing to do with what they did that day, but what they believe. And that's what makes them political prisoners. But does that mean that you support that insurrection in the way that it happened? There was not an insurrection. Insurrection is a crime. It's actually a felony. Nobody has been charged with insurrection. So you use that word. You defend it. What do you call it? What do you call it? What you had were some people who were bad actors and whom we do not know whether or not were involved with the FBI. Wait, wait, wait. Were involved with the FBI. You're alleging that some people in that mob that was attacking the police officers, you, you're alleging that some of them were in cahoots with the FBI? There has already been admissions that the FBI had confidential informants on the ground that day, and we think that needs to be answered for. We want to know what they were doing, who they were, what they were communicating. I said from the very beginning, anybody that committed violence against a police officer or destroyed property should be prosecuted and convicted. But that's not really what this is about. These are about the hundreds of people who have not been charged with that, who've had their lives destroyed. And this is about Ashley Babbitt. Were you there that day? No, I was not. Okay. I was not there. I was there on the, on the lawn, on the front line, watching people beating cops with flagpoles with the American flag. Spraying cops with... That's not what this is about, my friend. That is not what this is about. I, I don't care if you were there or not. You asked me if I was here. I did not ask you if you were there. Okay, well, I'm just telling you what I saw. You're acting like you were there and you witnessed it firsthand. It's irrelevant. The vast majority of people who were there were not charged with beating cops with flagpoles. And I've already made very clear to you, if you beat a cop with a flagpole, you should have a speedy trial with evidence presented against you. And if found guilty, spend some time in jail. I have no disagreement with that. This has nothing to do with those individuals who are assaulting police officers. This has to do with individuals who did not commit violence, did not destroy property, but are having their lives destroyed because they did what historically would get you at worst a $35 or $50 fine or nothing at all. Did you know the protesters blockaded the White House two months ago? Environmental protesters blockaded the White House two months ago. They were arrested that day. They were released that day. They weren't accused of insurrection. Probably because they didn't breach the White House. Breaching the White House and standing outside the White House are two very different things. Oh, no, they were standing on White House. Hey, look, they were standing on White House property. So anyway, 
Is it clear to you now that this rally is about two things? People who did not commit violence, who historically would have faced minimal fines, if anything, having their lives destroyed by the FBI and the Department of Justice, and the fact that a police department should not get to clear itself when it shoots an unarmed citizen. And here's the truth. You do not, for some reason, want to answer my question, but the vast majority of Americans agree with me on this. And every day when we're talking about it more and more and spreading the word about it, more and more end up agreeing with us. Regardless of their political strike, regardless if they support Trump or Biden or think the election was stolen, which this is not about whatsoever. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where to start, but let me just say this. I read your promotional materials. And leading up to the rally, you did encourage people to be respectful of police. We still do that. Every time I have a chance to speak about it, I tell people to be respectful, be kind to police officers. We've held two rallies that you didn't cover in D.C. already. One at the prison, one right in front of the Department of Justice. Those happened without incident. And we were completely kind and cooperative with the police. We got the permits. We let them know. They were all aware. We did a protest at the United Nations in New York City. We've done nine protests all across the country. We have 17 planned across the country for the coming weeks. No incidences. Everyone behaves themselves. And so leading up to September 18th, there was a lot of talk on Capitol Hill about putting up the fence, about security preparations. How did you feel as the organizer of this event, seeing all this concern about the potential for violence? I think that they are putting those chains up, those fences up, that guard tower up to intimidate people from attending because the ruling class in this country what they fear far more than what they even imagined happened on January 6th is what's going to happen on September 18th, which is the America First Right engaging in community organizing, having a peaceful protest, airing our grievances, bringing attention to our cause in a completely peaceful and safe manner. That is to them terrifying. And both voices on the, the left and on the phony right have been discouraging people from going to this. On the left, they say it's Insurrection 2.0. On the right, they say it's a FBI trap to trap everybody and arrest everyone. It's neither of those. We still have a First Amendment in this country, and we intend to use it. Did I miss here? Did you say phony right? There have been a lot of voices on the right trying to say that I'm an FBI agent, that this is a trap a honeypot, a false flag, or anything like that, and to, to discourage people from showing up. Well, I mean, it is, you know, in the wake of January 6th, there are going to be a lot of law enforcement eyes on this rally. Uh, we welcome that. I was just emailing today with the, one of the representatives we've been working with at the Capitol Police. We welcome them. We're not doing anything illegal. This is a, a peaceable um, First Amendment exercise. Why would we have a problem with police being there? All right, Matt, thank you. Back to the California recall election. I spoke with John Fiery, who is a Republican strategist. John, what did you see coming out of California with the recall election? Well, my humble opinion, when Larry Elder said that he was going to appoint a Republican replacement to Dianne Feinstein if he were elected governor, I knew the election was over. Um, you really needed uh, to beat Gavin Newsom. You needed someone who was seen as a uh, nonpartisan or s someone who could appeal to both sides. Larry Elder was, you know, I think, an interesting candidate, but California is a blue blue state. Newsom actually did a little bit better in the uh, last election, uh, in this election, than he did uh, in the, his last election. I think a couple of points better. And, you know, the fact is, is that it broke down on partisan lines. California is a blue state, and Larry Elder did not do enough of a job to appeal to independents. Despite the fact that, you know, there was a lot of uh, concern that uh, the that California is going down the tubes, um, you know, I think that uh, Democrats held serve and 
and, and won the election pretty easily. What kind of lessons do Republicans nationally take from that race? Well, if you're going to go after a blue state, you can't run as a Republican. You have to run as a independent reformer or independent fixer. Uh, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with, with California. Uh, homelessness, wildfires, um, lockdowns, the inability for people to afford basic housing. But there's a lot of the people who vote in the elections think things are going pretty well. So you have to uh, really kind of fit your... Uh, your language and fit your uh, election prospects and election me- messaging with what the, the voters want. Um, Elder also, you know, he he's not a wasn't a particularly credible candidate. I mean, I think he's a very gifted talk show host, but you know, he had uh, very little political experience other than uh, talking on on the radio, uh, which I know is important, but it's not enough necessarily to get you get you elected. Uh, nationally, I think that Republicans, you know. They have to understand that uh, it's going to be very hard for them to win in blue states as the party is currently constructed. I think they they, they were hoping to get a better turnout among uh, African-Americans on their side and also Hispanics. uh, They may have marginally happened. I think the other lesson that Republicans have to learn is uh, when you have uh, the election rules are such as they are in California, which means mail-in balloting. You know, the Republicans can keep complaining about mail-in balloting, but uh, they need to do be, be better at that. Mail-in balloting is the way that it works in California. Republicans have to be better at, at the kind of the process of getting election, uh, getting votes. And they just didn't do that good of a job this time around. All right, John, listen, I'm not going to take offense to what you just said about being qualified to run for office just because, well, just because you have a radio show. <laughs> I'll let that one go. But while we're talking about the GOP, there are some people who see the GOP now as the anti-vaccine party. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, I don't think the uh, being anti-vaccination uh, is probably not necessarily going to work. One of the things that you have to understand uh, is the Republican base is is, is concerned about uh, uh, the, the mask mandates uh, put down by the president. Uh, and they have to continually kind of represent their political base. I think that uh, you know when it comes to mask efficacy, there's there's no there's no real science behind it. It's all kind of a, a, a cultural kind of divide. Um, and you know Republicans, you know they, they, they don't they can't become the pro mask party. Um, I think that the on, on the issue of COVID, they they need to be pro vaccine because President Trump helped create the vaccines. That being said, you know, they, they also need to be in favor of free uh, exchange of ideas. I think what, what we've seen with the Democrats is that they allied with the social media companies is that they don't really want to have a full, fulsome and free discussion. You know, I think that if you look at the president's approval ratings, um, they're terrible. They're 42 percent and going down. So the, 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 the Republicans are going to do well if they run against Joe Biden and his, and his feeble leadership. Um, but they're not necessarily going to do well um, by making a partisan election in a state that is overwhelmingly blue. Well, what polls are you looking at? I, I don't know if I've seen a poll that suggests that President Biden's public approval ratings are terrible. It's true that Afghanistan has been a problem for him. But generally speaking, people like what he's trying to do on the pandemic. 40% seems kind of low. Where are you getting those numbers from? Uh, all the national, uh, uh, Quinnipiac, 
just had a poll out that had him at 42%. He was uh, under underwater on COVID. He was underwater on, on Afghanistan. He was underwater on the economy. Um, and his ratings are, are, are going down. Um, you know, it's um, it's it, I think it's will be good for Republicans to run against Joe Biden. Um, I think that uh, Joe Biden, uh, for, for a couple of reasons, a, I, I think his leadership is lackluster at best. Um, I also believe that uh, when it comes to midterm elections, that's always the best. <laughs> it's always best to run against the, the, the incumbent president. And if you look at the uh, right track, wrong track, people are very concerned about the direction of the country. So those are all very good reasons for Republicans continue to run against the Biden administration. They don't necessarily have to run a, a radio talk show host, uh, a conservative radio talk show host in a very blue state and expect to win because that, that clearly wasn't going to work. What's your opinion on former President Trump? Do you think that he has the right amount of influence on the GOP right now or too much influence? Yeah, I think the, the president is, try, is struggling to figure out where he fits in on the conversation. And the former president. And, um, you know, I think that he has still has a, uh, a pretty big impact on the political base. Uh, I think that Republicans were worried about primary challenges, uh, desperately wanted to get the president's um, they want to get the president's endorsement. I think that, you know, he's not going to go away. <laughs> uh, so uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that he uh, is trying to build the, the case for him to run again for the for, for the White House. And, you know, I think that it's very unusual for a president to get 10 million more votes in his reelection campaign and then lose the lose reelection. You know, he still has a about about right influence uh, on the party. You know, I think that how he handled himself post-election and uh, during January 6th was a, a huge mistake. Uh, and I think that uh, he's still kind of trying to figure out how to make his great comeback. Do you think uh, he should make a comeback? Well, it's not really what I think or not, don't think. I think that, uh, you know, I, I think Listen, that- Listen, I know it's of... a tough question. You have to admit that that is a tough question for mainstream Republicans. And I'm assuming the fact that you worked for Dennis Hastert in the past, I would consider you to be a mainstream Republican, a more traditional Republican. Well, listen, I, th I think that um, Trump- um, right now is the front runner to, to uh, run and win the nomination for Republicans. And if he runs and wins the nomination for Republicans, I'll probably will vote for him again. That being said, I think that the uh, right now we have an election in front of us, which is the midterms. I'm a little bit worried less about Trump and more worried about the, the, the state of the country. And I, what I'd like to see is, uh, you know, having some, some more checks and balances. I'm worried about the Democrats kind of running rush out and spending, you know, the Treasury and raising taxes like they always do. I'm worried about some of the other cultural stuff that they're pushing, which I think is ridiculous. And I really want to get uh, get on the other side of COVID. So, you know, Trump right now is not top of mind. I, I would prefer to have someone else run like a Ron DeSantis, um, who I think would uh, is is is, is uh, done a pretty good job as governor, although he has his, his fair share of critics. Do you think he's been right on COVID, given what we've seen happen in that state recently? Yeah, I think I think he's been largely right on COVID. I think that uh, people have to make a proper balance between, uh, you know, staying in their house all, all the time and, and living their lives. Uh, and uh, I don't I mean, I, I'm I do not believe that masks work. I think I, I think I think when it comes to uh, uh, pushing for uh, early uh, um, treatments, he's been very, very effective. 
and I think that, um, you know, uh, he's, he's largely had the right balance. Let me just follow up because just looking at what he's done in Florida, it, it seems similar to me to the kind of platform that Larry Elder ran on in California and lost. I mean, not, not really. I mean, Florida is a much, a much redder state than California. Um, and I think that I think the I think DeSantis was going to, is going to win his election overwhelmingly. Um, and I think that he's, uh, had got a lot more experience, uh, actually running things. Um, and he's done a, he's done a good job of, of not just kind of, you know, shutting everything down. Um, and, um, you know, elder, you know, you see elder on relief factor commercials, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, this guy's kind of a joke. Well, you bring up a good point. So I think it's it's really a combination of the message as well as the demographics of who you're trying to reach. California, for example, is a blue state. Florida seems to be gaining blue in some areas, but it's still a red state. Well, it's not, I don't know how you could say it's gaining blue. I mean, it's uh, DeSantis, uh, the Trump won that state overwhelmingly uh, in 2020 and barely won it in 2016. Um I don't think there's any question that it's actually trending red. Uh, it's almost coming going the same direction as uh, as Ohio as far as how red it's go, going. Um, and DeSantis has done, you know, he's done as good a job as anyone through the Delta variant. And you know, the fact is the Delta variant is a uh, it's a it's a hard one because uh, it's going to come to a neighborhood near you. I still think that COVID is the one issue that that just dominates everything. And I think that's going to be true for some time to come, no matter whether you're in a blue state or a red red state. What you're talking about here is opening up the economy. And I think everybody wants that. But when that happened initially, you know, what we saw was that the number of COVID cases started going up again. And so they had to shut things down again uh, because the numbers were going up. So the faster you get people to protect themselves against the virus, whether it's getting a vaccine or whether it's wearing a mask in combination with the the vaccine, that's when you can get the economy to open up again. So, I, you know, I don't know if you hear what I'm saying, but you can't have one without the other. Well, it's breaking down on partisan lines. Most people, most Republicans want want to open things up again. And most Democrats, uh, most most Democrats who who want to shut things down, especially Democrats who have the livelihood and the ability to work from home. Um, Most people who don't have kids. I don't think it's fair to say that most Democrats want to shut things down. I just think that, you know, there are people who like the flexibility of being able to work from home. Uh, And so, you know, I think what you're saying is probably taking it a little too far. Oh, well, I mean, I'd say most Democratic, let me put it this way, most Democratic political leaders want to close things down again, and most Republican political leaders want to open things up again. Um, and I think that they, they are both reflecting the desires of their political base. The statistics that I've seen show that the Delta variant is having a growing impact on younger people. That, that's, statistically, that, that actually is not true. Um, they, 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 what they've seen is that it has, yeah, kids get uh, Delta, um, but the, 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 the numbers in the hospitals are mostly from RSV. Um, and, you know, the other thing that happens when you put masks on kids is that it makes it very difficult for them to get their uh, immunity from other, other, other things like RSV. Um, and so, you know, what we're doing to kids is with, with all these shutdowns is really unforgivable. 
And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I might be insensitive to people who are over, eight, over the age of 85, but I'm very sensitive to kids. And that's kind of where, you know, the future of the country is. And I wish that people uh, would spend more time worrying about them. Do you know anyone personally who has died from COVID? No. Do you think that's part of the problem here? Because there are a lot of people out there who have friends or family who've died because of COVID and they have a very different outlook on this than you do. Do you think that's part of the problem here that there are people who have not experienced a loss that other, other people have? Well, you know, <laughs> what I, what I've, what I've experienced is um, an unprecedented shutdown for a case fatality rate of 0.04. See, I think you're thinking in economic terms. There are people who've lost loved ones. They are thinking in human terms. Right. Don't you think? Um, you know, I, I, um, I'm thinking in the terms of my kids. Um, I'm, ter- I'm thinking in terms of, 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 of general society. I'm thinking of terms of risk reward. I'm, th- I'm, I'm thinking in terms of uh, people who, um, you know, uh, we have lost all propor- a sense of proportion. I think of a societal response to a, 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 a uh, virus that, you know, I think it's been all out of proportion to what the virus does. And I, and I think that the, many of, the, many of the, the decisions we've made have made things even worse. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I suggested earlier, why don't we build more hospital capacity? But, you know, what you do when you, when you, when you say that uh, we're not going to have any, uh, everyone has to get vaccinated or they're not going to uh, work in a hospital, well, what do you have? You have hospitals having even less capacity to take care of people. I think the number of people who are losing their jobs because they haven't been vaccinated, that number is minuscule uh, compared to the, the the kind of impact that COVID is having uh, on hospitals. Let me ask you this question. Are there more people working in hospitals today or, or were there more people working in hospitals last year? Have hospitals increased their capacity? I think the number of I think the number of people who've lost their jobs because they're not getting vaccinated is minuscule uh, compared to some of the other issues we're we're talking about here. Uh, when you're talking about reducing capacity in hospitals, it's because of all these COVID cases, uh, the patients that are coming in because of the impact that COVID nineteen Delta variant is having on them. Obviously, there's there's numbers that have gone up. No question about it. I wish that there was more hospital capacity, but I, I don't think people are looking at, at at the bigger picture. Why do we have such little, you know, hospitals by and large are always filled up to about 95% capacity. The fact is the reason why there is reduced capacity in these hospitals is because doctors and nurses are swamped. They are taxed because of the number of COVID patients coming in. It's really shot through the roof. So even a small increase in COVID patients um, will overwhelm them because uh, they, they're always at 95% capacity. And you also, do you also know that there's a rule that you cannot build another hospital in a neighbor, uh, within like five miles of a hospital without getting regulatory approval uh, because they want to keep their... <laughs> uh, so there's, you know, there's all kinds of functional problems with the way hospitals operate. John, you raised some good points. I really appreciate your time. Nayara Heck worked in the Obama administration is now... Nayara Heck worked in the Obama administration and is now the host of Black News Channel's The World Tonight. What do you think of the results out in California? I got to tell you, I'm not terribly surprised. If you're looking at district by district, how voter turnout has worked uh, in California in the last couple of years, it really was not as much of a surprise 
that Gavin Newsom was able to pull it through. And not only was he able to pull it through, but he was able to pull it through in a way that reflected essentially not only the Biden numbers, but also the numbers of his previous, uh, of Gavin Newsom's previous uh, election win. The challenge that we're seeing right now, though, is this desire to have a narrative that Democrats are in disarray. Uh, And that's a way to look at it. um, But really, I look at it as the system in California is kind of broken, that anybody with enough money can effectively step up and challenge the government uh, and say that they want to run a recall. I mean, they did this in Wisconsin also. And that that is not how an effective system of governance is supposed to run. So you think that any talk of Democrats being in disarray, you think that's that's not accurate? You have turnout, very obvious turnout from key Democratic constituencies. And you had all of the things on the ballot that have helped Democrats win. They, you know, helped them win the White House and helped them win the uh, election uh, when it came to the you know, the majority in Congress. It's It was a defense of science. It was a defense of the rule of law. Uh, it was a defense of pandemic preparedness and uh, making sure that uh, you know, certain segments of the population get pandemic relief. You certainly had a lot of circus around it. I mean, Larry Elder um, proved the point that it's not necessarily important for Black voters to have another Black person there. It's the policies that are impactful and helpful to Black voters. We saw that really, again, once again, a Democrat won because of the support of a Black and Brown coalition. So that is more of the sign, I think, for Democrats nationally, that these are communities that, yes, you can rely on, but you also need to serve when you are in government. The other piece uh, that I think the, the Larry Elder conversation also raised is if there is not a strong pushback against uh, the insurrectionists on January 6th uh, on making sure that people are held accountable for the big lie that any candidate who loses, particularly who lose on the Republican side of the aisle, will start to use that narrative to their advantage and make it so that trust in the system writ large disappears. And that, to me, is a greater problem of democracy, the lowercase d, than it is for the capital D, the Democratic Party. Well, to Larry Elder's credit, he did say uh, on election night, hey, let's let's lose with grace. Uh, we may have lost this battle, but we're going to win the war. So he, he didn't take a similar approach to, to losing. Um, you can't really compare it to how former President Trump reacted. True. And, and there's a lot. That, <laughs> there's a lot that we can't compare to President Trump. But I will say this. When 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 pressed, when pressed multiple times by reporters in advance of the election and on election day itself, he would not say that he would accept the results of an election. He would not say that. Uh, he actually did say that there uh, that there has been voter fraud, uh, and and so that is the nugget right there that it, it plants the seeds of doubt in the integrity of the system. And California has a system that allows people to do something about that, which is effectively spend what was it close to one hundred thirty million dollars by low estimates to recall a governor that did something they didn't like, right? It's being painted as a Gavin Newsom flouted his own rules, therefore let's recall him. Um, when 
the numbers that bear out do not show that actually it was that level of distrust and disbelief in him. Uh, that actually it's the fact that the system allows you to, rather than impeach a governor, I mean, we, listen, Governor Cuomo was about to face impeachment by his legislature. That's part of why he stepped down. That's the system working. This recall system really plays to the advantage of those who have money, right? And so that's actually more of the elites versus everybody else is how are people who have access to money and the ability to influence systems, what are they doing to advance their own political objectives? But do the results out in California say anything about President Biden's weakness or his strength? It says something about the Democratic base writ large, which is that Democrats, in order to win, have to rely on a coalition of black and brown voters and some white voters who may be either uh, lower middle class or white women, right? That's a winning coalition. California is the extreme version of that. I would say that places like Georgia and Virginia are a little bit more interesting when it comes to the balance of dynamics and demographics. Georgia, Virginia has Northern Virginia, which is highly uh, changed in terms of the population and the demographics. Like it is like the example of the you know immigrant minority groups uh, being dominant, working in coalitions versus, you know, the more traditional uh, remnants of civil war culture that you see in Richmond, Virginia um, and around, you know, the conversations that were existed around race in Virginia, I think is, is more of the indicator and how that governor's election plays out more of an indicator of what Democrats need to do to win countrywide. And I say that because California is always going to go Democrat. It's always going to give its electoral, right? It's not, it's never really going to be a battleground state. What made it worrisome for Democrats this time was because a governor, Republican governor would have a one year term remaining that would allow that governor to appoint judges and make other executive decisions that would have a long term impact. It wasn't about the presidential as much, but Virginia is about the presidential and Virginia is also about uh, what happens in the midterm election. So that's the one that I would really keep my eye on. All right. So it's not too early to start focusing on the midterms. Is that the next conversation we're going to be having? Uh, in the political world? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately. We're entering that era of never-ending political cycles. Uh, and and yes, it, it is, right? I, I do I do wish that at some point we could be like the Brits where, you know, it's three months publicly funded campaigns and that's all you pay attention to and then you can go back to living your life. But I also believe deeply that people need to be politically engaged. And yes, the, the, the midterms is where the concern is. It's part of Biden's calculus too and having pushed an infrastructure package that would invest in a variety of different communities, including rural communities, and not having made the first play to be for his base, uh, which is voting rights or police reform. That's going to be the tension that Biden's going to be navigating going forward. And whether or not he resolves that to his advantage or the Democratic Party's advantage is what we will see come in the midterm, particularly because the tradition goes that whoever is in power in the White House, they will end up losing in the midterms seats from their party. And so that's that's why they're really concerned, because it's such a razor thin majority right now in the Senate. If Biden wants to be able to continue to govern and have an impact, he needs to be able to have allies in the Senate as well as the House. A year from now, do you think the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan will be a problem for this president? Typically, in polling, we do not see that voters make decisions based on foreign policy. No matter how much diplomats and others would like American public to care, you have heard Secretary of State Blinken that saying that 
government needs to do a better job of delivering a message. And he calls it middle class foreign policy of explaining how foreign policy and the decisions made impact Americans here at home. Afghanistan may be the exception to that because of the fact that veterans and Americans really felt connected to the war in terms of wanting to end it, not continuing it, not even necessarily seeing it done, quote unquote, the right way, but wanting it to be over. So we, we saw in polling around the drawdown was that Americans were overwhelmingly uh, in favor of the drawdown. However, they didn't love how Biden handled it. I think it was part of the political calculus, though Trump had given a May 1st drawdown, for President Biden to have the drawdown wrapped up before 9-11. That was actually an initial date that was suggested and uh, overwhelmingly panned as being, if you complete the drawdown on that day, that turns into a national as well as international message of a win and victory for the Taliban. Uh, so I think that was all part of the calculus of uh, the timing of having it wrapped up by the end of August so that Labor Day would happen, 9-11 commemoration would happen, and that eventually, uh, as Congress took up budget, uh, other bills and investment opportunities and other domestic issues, that the drawdown in Afghanistan and how it was mishandled would recede into the backdrop. And that, I think, is a cynical calculus, but that's also a very real political reality. And I suspect that the president's handling of the pandemic will be on the ballot. Absolutely, because that goes to it's all about the economy, right? The handling of the pandemic hits all of the pocketbook issues. Education for your children. Can they go to school? Health care. Are they able to afford and be safe? Um you know, economy. Are, are people able to go to work? Are they able to take care of their families? The childcare issues. I mean, it will be a win for Biden if these poverty rates stick uh, at being as low as they are. And it's a direct correlation to pandemic payments. The challenge also, though, is getting that narrative out of what what the combination of pandemic relief and the, the combination of infrastructure investment actually will do for a person's pocketbook. Because what we often end up seeing is the, the higher level media conversation is about, you know, the B's and the T's. Is it a billion dollars? Is it a trillion dollars? Like it just all sounds like funny money after a point. So I think that's going to be the communications challenge for the Biden administration as they look to the reelection. All right. Thank you very much. We're about a year out from the 2022 midterm elections. Expect to see campaign ads on your television and to hear those ads on the radio as well. I suspect that given the tone of the 2020 election, which frankly seems like it unfolded just yesterday, I suspect that what we saw in 2020 and what we've seen over the last couple of months in California with recall election out there, this upcoming midterm cycle is going to be unlike anything that we've ever seen. Buckle up, because it will be a bruising battle for control of Congress and then to position these parties, both the Democrats and the Republicans, for the next presidential election. It seems like that's far off, too, but you know how time flies. That is it for this week's America Change Forever podcast. You can download previous episodes wherever you download podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Jeff CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? 
Also, follow me on Instagram, JeffBegays6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.